Acts chapter 5 and verse 33. Acts chapter 5. We're going to start reading, actually, um, we'll start reading at verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would attend to your word by your spirit as we look at it together this morning, that your spirit would be powerfully at work in our hearts and minds, not only in mine as I speak, that you would be with my mouth, that I would speak truthfully about you from your word, teach your word accurately, but in our congregation that you would be with their ears, they might hear truly what your word says. And that we might understand what it means that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That we would rejoice in the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, even and perhaps especially when it means We are persecuted for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, actually, even though I've turned you here to Acts chapter 5 to conclude this chapter, I want to take you back briefly to Matthew chapter 5. So if you'll keep your hand in Acts chapter 5 and turn back to Matthew chapter 5, I want to see 
something that Jesus says in the Beatitudes that is a bit striking and kind of begin there this morning as he, he ends the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. If you notice there in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One of the things that, that is a sort of dramatic statement that comes right at the beginning of Matthew 5.10 is he says, blessed are those. This word blessed can also mean happy. It's an interesting contrast, especially in a, a verse like verse 4. Happy are those who mourn, or blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, why would anybody be blessed by or happy for being persecuted for righteousness' sake? I, I want you to think about that language. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. Now, I, I want to be clear. Not if people persecute you because you're a jerk. Okay? Not if they persecute you for your own sake because of your own sin, your own odd personality, your own strange way of doing things culturally, but blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not just blessed are you incidentally when you are directly preaching the gospel and you're persecuted, but blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, when you as one who lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ, seeing him as your Savior and Lord, or one who listens to and hears and lives by his word, one who speaks truthfully about him, and people persecute you for that. Blessed are you. And why are you blessed? Look at what he says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now here's the reason. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? And we ought to stop and ask, why would Jesus say that, that an assurance of your certain salvation is found in you being persecuted for righteousness' sake? In other words, you're blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And there's an assurance that comes to you of your certain salvation. Why, why would he contend that your salvation is, is seen to be true when you're persecuted for the sake of truth and righteousness? Well, I mean, that's a strange correlation to make, isn't it? Off the top, we don't think, if someone reviles me, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, when they destroy your name, we start to think, what am I doing wrong? Am I not being the godly person I need to be? Am I not being winsome enough? Am I not saying the right thing? Am I a good Christian at all? People are saying these things about me. 
Have I handled myself improperly? Jesus, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Listen, find joy in that. I, I don't think any of us, when we're persecuted, when our names are being slandered, I mean, that's the main persecution we face in our culture, right? We're nowhere near what the apostles are re receiving here, which is a full beating in Acts 5. We're, we're, we're mostly slandered. How many of us rejoice in being slandered? Rejoice and be glad. It's like redundancy. Find joy for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I think the key is found there. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, now what, do you, what do I mean by that? What do I think Jesus is getting at here? I want you to go back in biblical history to Genesis 3.15. In Genesis, if you remember, God has created Adam and Eve. He's created them to live holy lives before him, to spread his glory, image-bearing glory across the earth, to live in worship with him. And they listen to the voice of Satan, the serpent, rather than the voice of God, and they fall into the temptation to sin, and as they do, the curse of God comes upon them. And in the midst of the curse in Genesis 3.15, as God is cursing the serpent, we hear these words, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. He, the seed of the woman, will crush your head. You, Satan, will bruise his heel. And from there we have announced in this promise enmity between Satan's seed and the seed of the woman, and we see that flow throughout Scripture. As the world, those who listen to the voice of Satan, those who listen to foolishness, as they love the ear-tickling words of the false prophets and despise the truth preached by the true prophets, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. There's both a plural and a singular there. You see this go through as Pharaoh, the seed of the serpent, and Egypt oppose Israel, God's people, the offspring of the woman. You see it go through all of the Old Testament story and coming to its final, if you will, full fulfillment as Jesus is ultimately the seed of the woman, opposed by the seed of the serpent, by Satan himself. In other words, there will be always, we're told from Genesis 3.15 on, always conflict between the seed of the woman and Satan, or the serpent, and his seed. Between the world and those who listen to the voice of the world, and between God and his, and God and his people. This battle between God's people and Satan's people continues throughout history. We see it all across the Old Testament. We continue to see it. The seed of the serpent, those who listen to Satan's voice, have always opposed God's seed. The offspring of the woman, those who listen to God's voice. We see this in the way the people are constantly disparaging and even killing the true prophets, aren't they? And they're loving the false prophets. In the Old Testament, we see people rejoicing in false prophets 
and persecuting and killing true prophets. That's why Jesus can say what he does in Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, the world loves its own, and it hates those who are of the Lord. That's why Jesus says in Luke 6, 26, after he says, blessed are you, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for so they did the true prophets, he says in Luke 26, 26, a prophetic woe. It's a curse. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I mean, I don't know if we generally think of that, all people speaking well of us as being a potential prophetic curse. In other words, when you stand with the Lord and are cursed by men, you're blessed by God. And when you stand with the world and are blessed by men, you are cursed by God. I wonder if we believe this. I, I, I once had someone tell me that they were, they were going to leave the church. And they told me, well, there are people who speak badly about you and who think poorly of you. And that didn't surprise me at all, right? I just wondered why. What was the particular critique? You know, they said, I can't be in a church where, where people speak that way about the pastor. And so I asked, I said, is what they're saying true? In other words, are their accusations about me true? Are they critiquing my personality, which can be, you know, not good at times? Um, you know, I can be a little bit Peter-esque, right? One moment saying truth, the next moment Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan, you know? I can be that way. Is that what they're critiquing? What, what, what is it? Is what they're saying even true? And they said, no, nope. They're not, what they're saying isn't even true. I just need to be in a church, though, where everyone speaks well of the pastor. Listen, folks, I, I understand the concern. And I want to say this very clearly, and I say this on behalf of all of our pastors. If I'm in sin or any of us are in sin and bringing disrepute to, to this church or the name of Christ due to our sin, then I hope that you call a congregational meeting and drag us out and say you're done here. Now, call us to repentance for sure, but if we won't, toss us. It's the most merciful thing you can do, and it's the only way you're going to honor Christ's name. But if you're looking for a Christian life in which everyone speaks well of you or where everyone speaks well of your church, then you're not looking to follow Jesus. You're not. You're looking for a false prophet that you can follow. In fact, I would argue that if no one is ever speaking poorly of you, if no one is ever slandering your name for righteousness' sake because of your devotion to Christ and his word, then you ought to be concerned. I sat with a pastor not long ago and, and began to get to know him. And um, during the course of our conversation at lunch, um, I was telling him that it was great to meet him, that I was glad to interact with him, but um, I went on to tell him that you know, everyone I know um, and everyone I interact with regard to you speaks really well of you. And he said, man, I'm really happy to hear that. And, and I sort of awkwardly told him, 
that's precisely what concerns me about you. Now, it made for an awkward lunch, right? Because Jesus said, I went on to tell him, Jesus said, Woe to you if all men speak well of you, for so they did to the false prophets. Now, it, it sounds like, wow, what kind of weird lunch is this? Just so you know, it actually ended very well, and we have a friendship to this day. He actually, I actually went on to say, it's possible, though not necessarily the case, but it's possible that all men speak well of you because you tell all men what they want to hear rather than saying what you ought to say. And he actually said, you're right. I'm a man pleaser. I can't seem to get over it. I need help with it. So the lunch went quite well. We have got to stop worrying, friends, about whether the world likes us. Got to. We should be truthful. We should be kind. We should be gracious. We should love people at expense to ourselves. But we should not be surprised when the world hates us anyway. For the seed of Satan will always oppose the seed of the woman. And if you are Christ, the world hated him, and it will hate you also. Now when Jesus came, he was the consummate seed of the woman. He was the one at whom the prophecy ultimately pointed. He crushed Satan at the cross and the resurrection. He ascended and is ruling right now. He's reigning and he's present here by his Spirit Yet though Satan has been conquered, Satan is still active. He's not yet been put under our feet. He's under Christ's feet. But it's not till the return of Christ that he's put under ours so that Paul can say to the church of Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan is a defeated foe, but until the return of Christ... We live in a time in which Christ is here by his spirit in his church, but hasn't fully brought an end to all sin and suffering and death and Satan. And the apostles knew this from the very beginning of the church. And the apostles expected suffering. They expected persecution. They knew it was given to them, Philippians 1.29, not only to believe, but to suffer. They knew they must join Jesus, their Messiah, in a life of rejection, humiliation, and death. That's what it means when Jesus said to them, if you want to be my disciples, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. You have to die to yourself. You are going to suffer with me. And they saw the honor of being dishonored. They found grace to be at work in their disgrace. For they were counted worthy to suffer for the name, and in this re they rejoiced. For so they treated not only the prophets in the Old Testament, but so they treated the final word, the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah. And so what I want to do as we look at our text in Acts 5 is I, I want to go through three primary movements in our text. The apostles' assertion that they are witnesses to the Lord the Lord's witnesses, the apostles being tried and beaten for this assertion, and the apostles rejoicing in their suffering as Christ's witnesses. So let's look first at the apostles' assertion that they are the Lord's witnesses. 
Look at verse 27, the apostles as the Lord's witnesses. And when they had brought them, chapter 5 of Acts, sorry, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. If you remember in chapter 4, they had been told, You are not allowed to speak about the name of Jesus anymore. They continue to do it, in fact, so much so that they had filled Jerusalem with the teaching. And that they were saying that the religious leaders of Israel were responsible for the death of Christ. And these men are objecting to that. Though they were actually there saying to Pilate, let his blood be on us and our children, they're shocked that the apostles are actually saying your blood is on you and your children. But Peter and the apostles answered, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, there is a higher authority than even the government. When the government asks you to sin, you don't do it. When the government tells you, commands you to do something the Lord forbids you from doing, or when the government forbids you from do it, to do something that God commands you to do, in that instance, you do not obey the government. You obey the government in every other instance, but not in ones in which they're asking you to, evo- to disobey a higher authority, whom is the Lord. And so they won't disobey the Lord. We obey him. Verse 30, the God of our fathers, Yahweh of the Old Testament, raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. In other words, the Messiah has come. You called him a curse. You crucified him. And the Lord has raised him. God exalted him, verse 31, at his right hand as leader and Savior. In other words, God has exalted him. He is now the leader, the king of the earth. He is the king of Israel, and he's the Savior, and he's done that for what purpose? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To save the very people who cursed him and killed him. And they go on, verse 32. I dealt with most of that text last week. Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. Jesus had already told the apostles that they would be his witnesses. Now the word witness in Acts, especially this section of Acts from chapter 1 through 5, 6, etc., is a pretty technical term dealing with the fact that these apostles are themselves set apart as the witnesses. Now I'm not saying that we aren't also witnesses, but we aren't witnesses in the way that they're talking about here. They saw him alive, they walked with him, they saw him die at the cross, they saw him resurrect from the dead, they walked with him after his resurrection, they heard his teaching directly about the coming of the Spirit. They are the true witnesses, if you will, those who were talked about in Isaiah, whom Jesus said they would be in Acts 1.8. They are his witnesses. And notice what they say. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Who obey him. Notice that the apostles disobey because they follow a higher authority, the resurrected Lord, and they are his witnesses, as they are his witnesses, and so is the Holy Spirit. They've been indwelled by the witness, the Holy Spirit. And they are not surprised that the government and religious leaders are persecuting them. That's precisely what Jesus told them would happen. And, and look at Acts chapter 15, I mean, excuse me, John chapter 15. Keep your hand in Acts 5. And look at John chapter 15 and verse 18. Here's Jesus teaching the disciples during the last week of his life. Arguably, here is the last night. 
of his life. Verse 18 of John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's not just a temporal statement like I was hated first. That's also a statement about the reason the world hates you. Because it ultimately, because it hates me. That's what Jesus is saying. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. In other words, Jesus says they're not just rejecting me, the Messiah, they're rejecting the Father who sent me. Now, look down at verse 26 of chapter 15 of John. But when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, notice this tie. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Hear this? They are the witnesses because they've been with Jesus from the beginning, and the Holy Spirit is ultimately the witness to the truth about Jesus Christ, indwelling and empowering them as witnesses to the truth about Jesus Christ. And in John, you have tied together these two things, that when you are witnesses of me, and dwelt by the witness, the Holy Spirit, then persecution will come. The world will hate you because it hated me first, because you're indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. The world will hate you because they hated me, because a servant is not greater than his master. This is the farce of the Christian who thinks he can win the world's approval, isn't it? Listen, to assume that you can win the world's love is to assume that the servant can be greater than the master. I, I want you just to stop and think of the sheer arrogance of that. The true prophets in the Old Testament weren't able to win over the world. John the Baptist wasn't able to win over the world. And the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who holds the universe in his hands, was not able to win over the world. But we're going to do things differently now. And the world will love us. We're going to be winsome in a way they never could be. And the world will love us. It's arrogant. It's one of my primary concerns over what was, was, really is kind of died off by name, but what was once called the seeker-sensitive movement. This movement wants to reach unbelievers, and incidentally, I don't fault the seeker-sensitive movement at all for the desire to reach unbelievers with the gospel. It wants the church, or wanted the church, to be sensitive to visitors and even appeal to them in the way it structures the worship service and what is said. And at its best, I want to give brothers and sisters in Christ who ran down this road, I was one of them who ran down this road at one time, incidentally. 
I was a seeker-sensitive pastor at one time. At its best, the seeker-sensitive movement was reminding the church to show good hospitality, to care about unbelievers walking in their doors. At its worst, the seeker-sensitive movement was encouraging the church to mirror the world, to dumb down its doctrine, to try to find a way to make the world love us. It encouraged pastors to change their language. You no longer say words like sin or hell or justification or propitiation. Even if you define them, you don't say them because they're offensive. Play down the exclusivity of Christ. That's offensive. It's all too much for visitors. I've actually had pastors tell me that I should never use the word sin. I should say mistakes. I was told before we started this church that sustained exposition of the Bible text will just turn people off. We shouldn't do it. No one's interested in that kind of thing. No one will come to that kind of church. You'll never reach unbelievers that way. Um, Chase, who leads music for us, was actually interviewing at a large church, and the senior pastor came to hear him lead music, and he played a bunch of hymns. And at the next interview, the pastor asked him, how, how are unbelievers supposed to join in worship if you're going to sing all that doctrine? To which Chase said, well, unbelievers aren't worshiping the Lord <laughs> by nature. Listen, what you win them with is what you win them to. You win them with worldliness, and you've won them to worldliness. You haven't won them to Jesus. Now I completely understand the desire of pastors to reach unbelievers and churches to reach unbelievers, to make them feel welcome, to make the worship service somewhat intelligible to them to the degree that you can by defining terms, by trying to explain things to the degree that you can. But we can never build a worship service which appeals to unbelievers or which makes them comfortable. You never can. Quite the opposite, when we build a worship, and not a worship service to God, by the way, when we build a worship service around love of the Lord and his word, be assured that the world will hate it and will be made uncomfortable by it. They may respect you. That does happen. They respected the apostles for a time, didn't they? But they won't generally come too near to you. I remember when I was in seminary down at, at um, Biola, at Talbot School of Theology, and there was a professor there named Dr. Robert Sosi, who I had the privilege of meeting with on a weekly basis, a systematic theology professor whom I loved. He was a godly man. And I remember being in his office. He was probably, it was probably year two that I was in seminary. He's since died a few, within the last few years. I asked him at the time what he thinks is the biggest mistake of our generation with regard to the church. And he quickly said, oh, that's, that's easy, the seeker-sensitive movement. And I, I was initially puzzled. He says, and whatever it calls itself, it doesn't really have to call itself a secret sentence, but whatever it calls itself, and I was puzzled that that was the biggest mistake of our generation because at the time, I was one of those pastors. And he said to me, we've attempted to become like the world, bringing worldliness into the church so they'll love us. 
and we've dishonored the Lord by doing so. He says, I can't think of a lot of other times, he told me, I can't think of a lot of other times in the church, history of the church where we've actually said, in order to get the world to love us, we're going to make the church look like the world. What Dr. Sosi was rightly driving at is that the moral calculus of that movement was deeply skewed, for if Satan's seed loves you, it may be because you are Satan's seed. If you are the seed of the woman, then the seed of the serpent will oppose you, and in this you should rejoice, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, we don't need to offer the world cheap gimmicks in hopes that they'll love us. We have the gospel to offer them. I'm not talking about being edgy and going out and telling people how God hates them and has a horrible plan for their life. Okay, I'm not saying run out there and let people know God is up there, he's really angry with you, he's bringing his just wrath upon you. Now you can say this part of it, but you better not stop there. He's gonna bring his just wrath upon you and then here's where that real error comes in. Jesus has come to buy him off. So believe in Jesus. No, we, we get to tell them instead about a holy, incomprehensible, majestic, Trinitarian God who created them, who sustains them, who spoke to them in his word so that he might be friends with them. We get to tell them of the Father who loved them from eternity past, who never ceased loving them. Yes, is he angry? Yes, is there just against, this, against sin? Yes, but the Father is the one who out of great love for us sent his son Jesus for us. We get to tell them about the Son who in grace came for us and lived and died and rose from the dead for us. Understand, Jesus didn't need to keep the law for his own good. He didn't need to come as a man for his own good. He didn't need to go to the cross and die there for his own good. He did that for you. The Father didn't need to send the Son for his own good. God was not lacking any glory or any joy. Prior to creation, creation is not necessary to his being. He voluntarily and freely creates out of the overflow of his love so that we might share in his glory and be his friends. The Father sent the Son because he loves you. The Son in grace came and lived and died for you. The Spirit who was sent to comfort and assist you, to give you life, unite you to Jesus through faith so that you might be saved and reconciled to God. That is good news. The world may not love it, but let's not prefer cheap gimmicks and tricks when we have the greatest news in all the world. The God who created everything, who sustains everything, who keeps your heart beating day by day, who gives you the breath you have, that God loves you and has sent his son for you and to send his spirit to give you life. And you say, aren't you worried that non-elect people might hear that and be led astray? No, I'm not. They're blind and they're deaf. It isn't until the Holy Spirit gives them life that they hear any of this anyway. So go out there in an unabashed sense and let the world know that God sent Jesus to save the world because he loves them. 
because they need saving. And the good news is God is pleased to save. The apostles know this is what they have, and they won't stop preaching it. As the apostles disobey the unlawful commands of the religious leaders, their persecution intensifies. That leads to our second point, the trial and beating of the apostles. Look at verse 33. The apostles get tried and then beaten. Acts 5 and verse 33. When they heard this, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So here, this council is a Sadducee council. A Pharisee stands up, Gamaliel. He is um, a teacher held in high honor by all the people. He's actually the teacher of one named Saul, who we later come to know as the Apostle Paul. And he said to them, men of Israel, verse 35, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. That's about 6 A.D., so you know. And drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Listen, here's the basic gist of what's happening here. The Sadducees basically want to kill the apostles. Sadducees want to kill them. Gamaliel, one of the Pharisees, suggests a mediating position. Here's the mediating position. Let's not kill them. If it's of man, it'll die off anyways. If it's of God, you can't stop it, and you'll be found opposing God. And there are four things I want you to note quickly about Gamaliel's argument. First, Gamaliel is not on the apostles' side. He's not believing their doctrine. He may just be trying to moderate the response of the crowds because at this point, they're still fairly popular with the crowds the apostles are. Second, his parable, or I mean, his, his little, um, not parable, his little saying here, his, his kind of wisdom does not really hold true. There are lots of movements of men which don't die off easily. Islam. Okay. Every false religion in the world. Some die off quickly, some don't. His statement is, third, his statement is ironic, in that this movement is of God, and they can't stop it, and they are opposing the Lord. In other words, Gamaliel sang this to try to calm the situation down, not really believing it, but the irony is he's right. This is of God, and they can't stop it. Fourth, his historical accounting is not in error. What? You might stop and go, why did you just give us that fourth point? There are lots of New Testament critics who argue that Gamaliel creates an error here, or really that Luke puts false history in the mouth of Gamaliel. Now, scholars try to argue Luke has created this error in reporting Gamaliel's testimony in this way, and, and here's how the argument goes. I, I want you to hear this. This scene where the apostles are being tried 
either happens in 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., depending on which of those two years Jesus was crucified. Scholars argue over that all the time. It's either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. They don't know. I don't know. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter to me which of those two years it happened in. The, the point is, this scene happens within months of that. So this is in the same year, either 30 or 33 A.D. Josephus tells us that Theudas led his rebellion. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, tells us about a rebellion named Theudas that happened in 44 A.D., probably somewhere between 44 and 46 A.D., when Phaedas was procurator sorry, of Judea. So how could Gamaliel, how could Gamaliel, however you say his name, be talking about a rebellion which happened over 10 years after this scene happens? See, that's what scholars ask. Further, Luke says in verse 37 that after this rebellion of Thutis, notice this, verse 37, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. We know the days of the census happen in about 6 AD. And that word after in the Greek means after. Okay? Temporally following. So how could Judas the Galilean lead a revolt in 6 AD after the revolt of Thutis, which happens in 44 to 46 AD? And how could both of these be in the mouth of Gamaliel in either 30 or 33 AD? Recorded in Luke. You guys follow the problem? There's an error in Acts, they say. Luke has botched his history. And so now the scholars will conclude that we either acknowledge that the Bible has historical errors and can't be trusted, or we admit that the Bible has some errors like this but can still be trusted as to its doctrine. The problem with the second position is why it sounds like a nice mediating position. It does have errors, but it can still be trusted as to his doctrine. Here's what gets smuggled into that. Every time I don't like a doctrine, there's an error in the Bible I just found. So the question is, has Luke botched the history? Has he botched it? Now, I think one follow-up with, are those the only two options? i.e. Luke botched the history and therefore we either deny the Bible altogether or we just say that it gets some facts wrong. But theologically, it's still true. Are those the only two options? Is there any solution to the dilemma? And I think the solution is found in acknowledging a few truths. Here's some of them. According to Josephus, I want you to say this because we're citing the first century Jewish historian Josephus. According to Josephus, who writes much later than Luke, probably 20, 30 years after Luke, According to Josephus, there were many revolts led during the first century, numerous, numerous revolts, and he comes nowhere near attempting to write about them all. He just catalogs. There are loads and loads of revolts and rebellions. Second, Thutis, this name Thutis, was a common name. Like Judas, you hear that more than one time, don't you? Thutis is a common name. It's entirely possible there's more than one revolt led by someone with that common name. That's like saying John led a revolt in, you know, the 1950s at Sovereign Grace Church, and somebody says, aha! 
There's an error because Sovereign Grace didn't start until 2007, and John wasn't even alive in the 1950s. He wasn't a pastor in, at Sovereign Grace until 2000 and whatever. And you say, wait a minute, John is a common name, and Sovereign Grace, there are other churches named that. Okay, so we have to be careful. Finally, while the story of Josephus and Luke have many parallels, as any rebellion story in the first century would, they don't seem to indicate the same incident. I want you to hear how Luke records the story again. Thutis rose up. Notice what he says. Thutis rose up, verse 36, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, how many? About 400, Luke tells us, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Now listen to the story of the Thutis of whom Josephus speaks. Here's Josephus in his Antiquities. Josephus in his antiquity says this, During the period when Fattus was procurator of Judea, AD 44-46, a certain imposter named Thutis persuaded, now listen to this, the majority of the masses to take their possessions and to follow him to the Jordan River. He stated that he was a prophet and that at his command the river would be parted and would provide them an easy passage. With this talk, he deceived many. Fattus, however, did not permit them to reap the fruit of their folly, but sent against them a squadron of cavalry. These fell upon them unexpectedly, slew many of them, and took prisoners. Thutis himself was captured, whereupon they cut off his head and brought it to Jerusalem. Yes, both, Thut both Thutis's led rebellions. Both were killed, but the one of whom Luke speaks had about 400 followers and came before 6 A.D., the one of whom Josephus speaks persuaded the majority of the masses, even telling them he was going to part the river, and was in 44 to 46 AD. The point in all this is that there's no real historical error here. Yes, Luke tells us the historical account of a revolt by a Thutis of whom we don't have another record of except in Luke's gospel. But Josephus tells us the account of another Thutis whom Luke doesn't record that happened in 44 to 46 AD. That doesn't create a historical error in the Bible. That just means one has an account of one revolt, another has an account of another revolt where revolts were common and the name Thutis is common. And the revolts are different. One persuades the majority of the masses, another just a few people. Yes, there are real questions to be discussed in research, but there's no real proof of error. Really, there's only the voice of Satan speaking through New Testament critics who are attacking the seed of the woman. That's strong, but it's true. And what is the outcome of Gamaliel's appeal? Look at the end of verse 39. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They decided not to kill the apostles. That was, this is merciful. They just give them a beating and told them not to speak again about Jesus. Now, what's this beating? It's a scourging. It's the 40 lashes minus one. That, that would have been a whip that had two tails on it. Generally, those tails would likely have had hooks in them, each tail. Like, sort of like if you think about fish hooks. And the hooks would be in there, and they'd whip the person, and they would flay them open by stripping their, their flesh open 39 times. This is what happens to the apostles. It ripped them open. It's absolutely brutal. In fact, in the first century, people died from this. 
we're told the Apostle Paul received this kind of beating three times. This is how they were treated. I mean, think about it. We're concerned about people slandering us or not liking us or maybe not getting a promotion because we take a stand for our faith. Look at what they're undergoing. I'm worried that when I tell the person next to me at Starbucks about Jesus, they might look at me funny, think I'm a nut job, and move over a table. I'm nowhere near facing a beating like this. And I do worry about that. I'm sure you do as well. And how do the apostles respond? This is my third point. The apostles rejoice in their suffering as Christ's witnesses. So not only are they Christ's witnesses, not only they tried and beaten as Christ's witnesses, but they rejoice in their suffering as Christ's witnesses. Look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. I want you to think about this. They just got ripped to shreds with the beating. They left the presence of the council, and that ought to just stop you in your tracks rejoicing. They don't leave the council with their heads down saying, all is lost, why continue trying to do this? We're just going to get a beating. The government's against us. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They don't cease teaching it. Jesus is the Messiah. Teaching and preaching seems to have a different nuance here, one being evangelistically preaching in the temple and the other being house to house teaching the doctrine to the church. But the point is, they're out day by day in houses, training believers in the temple, preaching to unbelievers, saying Jesus is the Messiah, that the whole of the Old Testament has pointed forward to him and he has fulfilled its promises. And they won't be shut up about it. Now, they, they don't like persecution itself. They are not gluttons for punishment. They aren't saying the kinds of irresponsible things that people in first world free countries can say. Things like, man, I just hope persecution comes to the church so we can be purified. If you say that, it's because you haven't been persecuted. You have no idea of what you speak. That's easy to say in a free country, in the first world. And yes, we'd all love to see the purification of the church. But the apostles never, ever prayed for persecution. You know that? They prayed for boldness to proclaim the gospel with clarity no matter what. In fact, Paul even tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which you can read later, to pray for government rulers so that the church might live in relative peace. Pray for your government rulers so the church might live in relative peace so that we can preach the gospel. Unabated. Freely. We ought to pray that the church would have peace in our country. We ought to pray for the unabated freedom to spread the gospel. And we ought to pray for the boldness to proclaim the gospel regardless of whether we lose that freedom and peace or not. 
The apostles were not rejoicing in persecution because they thought it might smoke out false Christians. Hear that? Oh, good, we're being persecuted. Now we can smoke out the false Christians. They'll leave now. That's not why they were rejoicing in persecution. They're rejoicing in persecution because it was their motive to honor the name of Christ and to see lost people saved. The apostles were pleased to suffer with their Savior because it demonstrated that they were blessed people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're willing to suffer great disgrace and persecution so that people might be saved and Jesus might be glorified. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us of his ministry, and I'm way over time, but I'm going to conclude with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Hear that? We'll face death and persecution to our mortal bodies so that you might know life through the preaching of the gospel. And Paul goes on to say that's how we commend ourselves to the world. Not through gimmicks, not through being peddlers of the word, but through an open statement of the truth, proclaiming Jesus no matter the cost. He says we commend ourselves in 2 Corinthians 6 and 3. We put no obstacle in any way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet as possessing everything. Is that how you commend yourselves? Is that how you pray that your pastors and your church commend themselves to others? We pray that the Lord would cause that in us, that we would believe that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray. Father, may you cause us to commend ourselves as Christ's people, to commend ourselves as those who listen to his voice and his word, as those who trust in him as Savior and Lord, as those who proclaim him to others as Savior and Lord, as those who rejoice in him when we are counted worthy to suffer for the name. Father, will you give us the boldness to preach the gospel, to speak with clarity in the face of fear about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May you give us the ability to commend ourselves to people in Christ, whether 
we are in poverty and persecution or winning great favor, in either case, Father, may we look only to your Son and want to proclaim him. May people be saved. May you give us the freedom and peace necessary to proclaim the gospel without interference from our government. Give us leaders, Father, even as we approach elections. Give us leaders who will continue to give the church peace and freedom. But either way, whatever the outcome, Father, cause us to be rejoicing, to be counted worthy, to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.